It is worth noting that The Stranger is not Albert Camus' autobiography. If anything, it's somewhat of a reversal of the story of his life. Camus' love for his deaf mother became protagonist Mersault's indifference. While Camus grew up in a silent world, Mersault lives in a noisy place where every single sound is heard. While Camus hated colonial violence, he had his protagonist murder an Arab. It seems that Camus was reversing every sentiment he had ever had. Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung hypothesized that Camus was looking for his shadow side to free him. But the question remains what exactly Camus felt a need to free himself from. Was it from the darkness in Paris in adulthood? Or from the blinding Algerian sun from his childhood? Or was it from thoughtless violence and indifferent love? Whatever the reason, The Stranger is without a doubt a strange literary beginning for a humanist, and maybe because of that, the book remains fascinating. Anyone who loves to read knows that books have a life. They come to life as you read them, and they stay alive long after you've turned the last page. The Stranger adds yet another degree to this by changing how you perceive it depending on when in your life you read or reread the piece, which we highly encourage you to do. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, philosophy, and outsiders. I'm your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin, and on this episode, we explore the life and writings of Albert Camus, in particular, his novel, The Stranger. strange to me. Now that everything is clear-cut, wait and spare nothing. At least work in a way that achieves both silence and creation. All the rest, all the rest, no matter what happens, is unimportant." End quote. Born November 7, 1913 in Dreyan, Algeria. Albert Camus once confessed that he never recovered from his harsh and spare childhood. His family resided in the Belcourt neighborhood of Algiers in an apartment with three small rooms and a kitchen, no plumbing, no electricity, and just one toilet shared by three families in the building. He would reside there from infancy until high school with his grandmother, mother, brother, and uncle. His father had died in the Battle of the Marne in 1914, and all his widow retained was a photograph and a fragment of the shell that had killed him. Albert and his older brother Lucien shared a single bed wedged into the same room with their mother's bed. The bedroom window gave view onto the inner courtyard. As a child, he could barely sit still. His exuberance in class, on the soccer field and at the beach, was exceptional. He was a force of nature, physically unstoppable until, in 1930, he began to cough up blood. It was soon concluded that 17-year-old Albert had contracted tuberculosis and he was sent to live with his uncle Gustav, a butcher who had a ground-floor apartment with a large library and a courtyard garden. His uncle's comfortable home became a refuge for him. It was the place where he began to read seriously and where he could eat regular portions of red meat considered essential to cure the disease. He was told he might die, and if he were lucky, 
He faced a lifetime of repeated treatments, months of bed rest, x-rays, and injections. Still 17, he wrote literature and music criticism in a student magazine with an insight beyond his years. That same year, he started to draft what would transform over the next seven years into a first collection of personal essays titled The Wrong Side and The Right Side. As he dreamed about what it would take to become a real writer, he approached philosophy as a discipline. Nietzsche, Schopenhauer, Bergson, and Kierkegaard nourished his thinking about a godless world and a world of forms. Philosophy also seemed the best path to a stable teaching career. Unfortunately, when he applied to compete for a state-sponsored teaching position, which seems like the next logical step after his philosophy degree, he was declared ineligible because of his tuberculosis. The government simply didn't want to invest in a teacher who might not be around very long, and official policy stated that no one with a contagious disease could join the teaching corps. Quote, the only way to deal with an unfree world is to become so absolutely free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. End quote. It was during the summer of 1939 at age 26, just as World War II was kicking into high gear, that Camus sat down to write what would become The Stranger. Most of what we know about the process of the creation of the book comes from his notebooks. Two years before he'd sat down and began on the book, he'd experienced the first gist of what would become his future novel. In a notebook of what would become one of many, he wrote, A man who looked for life where people usually find it, marriage, position, etc., and who realizes suddenly, reading a fashion catalog, how he has been a stranger to his life. This is also the first awareness of what would become the title. There is only one place in the notebooks where he reflects upon the mysterious process by which a new book was coming into focus. This was after leaving Paris en route to a mountain resort in Embrum in the Alps, a place where he could rest and breathe easily. From his train compartment, he wrote about the way words or characters would come to him without a conscious awareness to why it occurred. Sometimes I need to write things that escape me in part but which are proof of precisely what within me is stronger than I am. Since 1936, he had been writing and rewriting the novel, A Happy Death, narrated in the third person, pouring emotion into his story to make it come alive. Now, two years later, he had come up with a new narrator who said, I, but coldly, a narrator with no resemblance to himself. However, if there was a point of no return, a moment when his prior novel attempt gave way to the stranger, it came in the fall of 1938. In a notebook entry marked 22 with no month, he wrote five sentences. These sentences would appear in print four years later, the first five sentences of the stranger. Today, Mama died. Or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. I got a telegram from the home. Mother deceased. Funeral tomorrow. Faithfully yours. That doesn't mean anything. Maybe it was yesterday. The day he wrote the first paragraph of The Stranger in his notebook, pieces of the novel already existed in his imagination. His narrator would have to make sense of all those pieces. A man who didn't know which day his mother died and didn't mind not knowing. 
a protagonist who had a way of talking that was almost mechanical and strangely empty, given the circumstances. Gone was the pressure he'd felt writing a happy death to make Patrice Marceau appealing, and with it came relief and creativity. As of October 1938, he was working as a journalist to make ends meet. He had been working at the Institute of Meteorology prior to this, but the meager pay of 1,000 francs a month simply was not enough to get by. As a journalist, he would spend hours sitting in closed courtrooms, discovering the well-oiled machinery of judicial plots and studying an extravagant cast of characters who were ready-made for fiction. This time spent in court would allow him to plot the stranger around a crime that grew out of ethnic tensions in Algerian society and around a trial that made a mockery of the justice system. He knew by the spring and summer of 1939 that the narrator of his new novel was going to kill an Arab, a reflective act as there was an abundance of material in the press about conflicts between Arabs and Europeans at the time. Jean-Paul Sartre rewrote his novel Nausea after reading Dashiell Hammett. For Camus, the model for his novel was James M. Cain's The Postman Always Rings Twice, which appeared in French translation in 1936. Several critics have speculated that this novel led Camus from the dead end of the novel A Happy Death to his work on The Stranger. Whenever anyone asked, he acknowledged its influence, though he wouldn't go into detail. I'm going to attack my novel, he wrote his girlfriend Francine in October 6, 1939 from his mother's apartment, where he had moved in September to keep her company after his brother was drafted. He continued, I see the form and content around me in the poverty here, the simple people, and their resigned indifference. They give an image of a rather frightening world without tenderness. By the next day, he had changed his mind and decided instead to begin an essay on the absurd, which became the myth of Sisyphus. As 1939 turned to 1940, he may have been stumbling in his philosophical essay, but he was zeroing in on images for the stranger. Under the heading novel, he wrote in his notebook, This story begins on a burning hot blue beach and the tanned bodies of two young people bathing in the ocean, playing games in the sea and sun. Now as he moved closer and closer to the stranger, his writing grew more certain and his life more difficult. In February, he continued to look for work, to no avail. It's winter 1940. His future was uncertain, but that first chapter was a promissory note. He knew that all he needed to keep going was a place to write and time. With his protagonist, Merceau, he'd found an agent to transform his earliest perceptions of the world and to make good on the challenge he had set himself. The true work of art is the one that says the least, he would say. In Paris, Camus had found both work and his rhythm. When he was interviewed by a French professor about what made the stranger become a success, he remembered how it happened. Once I discovered the trick, all I had to do was write. So for two months, he wrote, faithful to his ideal of silence and creation. His notebooks were good company. In one, he wrote, Why is it that knowing how to remain alone in Paris for a year in a miserable room teaches a man more than a hundred literary salons and forty years' experience of Parisian life? 
It is a hard, terrible, sometimes agonizing experience, always so close to madness. But left to his own company, a man's talents must be tested and affirmed, or perish. And if they perish, it's because they weren't strong enough to survive. For two months, he worked on The Stranger every day and part of every night. He discovered that he could be in the middle of a paragraph, go off to work his shift at Paris Soyer, come back to the hotel room and pick up exactly where he had left off, with no difficulty. At his previous position as a journalist, he developed speed and agility, but he had never done creative work with so much ease, and certainly not fiction. He had his structure and soon found the mold into which he could pour the pieces he had gathered. The novel would be in two parts. Part one would contain six chapters. Part two would be five chapters. The book hung on the last chapter in part one where Mousseau commits the crime that gets him condemned to death, the murder on the beach. By April 1940, after two weeks living at the Hotel du Poirier, he had chapters one and two somewhat complete and was ready to begin on chapter three. Little did he know that the work he was doing in that small hotel room would change the history of modern literature. If he had been making a film, part one would have been in color, part two in black and white. Part two of The Stranger is told from behind prison walls. It brings Merceau from his arrest to his incarceration and then to his trial, into the justice system whose rituals had become so familiar to him during his months covering the courthouse. The last paragraph of The Stranger carries with it all the terror of a living nightmare. Was it his own nightmare? A fear? As he finished so quickly that he deserved to be punished for the novel that might finally succeed? Or was he welcoming the death of the part of himself best left behind on the streets of Algeria? Under his last sentence, he drew a bar in black ink with a period before and after it. It was past midnight. He signed his name, Albert Camus, and added, Paris, May 1940. After signing his last page, he tried to stop writing. But he had so much excess nervous energy that he started a long letter to Francine. He knew he had done something important, but he was still quite young and full of hesitations and questions. He wrote, I'm writing you in the middle of the night. I've just finished my novel and I'm too innervated to think about sleeping. Probably my work isn't finished. There are things I need to go back to, other things to add. But the fact is, I've finished and I've traced the last sentence. The manuscript is sitting in front of me and I think about what it has cost me in effort and in will, how I have needed to be present to it, to sacrifice other thoughts, other desires to stay in its atmosphere. I don't know what it's worth at certain moments these days. Certain of its phrases, its tone, its truths have shot through me like lightning. And I was terribly proud. But at other times, I see nothing but ashes and clumsiness. I'm too consumed with this story. I am going to put these papers in my drawer and start to work on my essay. In two weeks, I will take everything out and work on this novel again. Then I'll have it read. I don't want to spend much more time on it because really I've been carrying it with me for two years and I could see by the way I wrote it that it was already completely traced within me. 
What's funny is that I don't even know if I am happy, yet that is the only thing that can get beyond myself, and I believe that I will forgive everything in Paris for having allowed me to live locked up like this in what I was doing. Even if it didn't have value, the joy of the work itself has a value that no one can destroy, and it is that joy I would feel tonight if I weren't so tired. I still imagine that the reader of this manuscript will be at least as fatigued as I am, and I don't know if the continuous tension felt within it will not discourage many souls. But that isn't the question. I wanted this tension, and I worked to transmit it. I know it is there. I don't know if it is beautiful. On May 1st, 1940, after a sleepless night, he wrote in his notebook, The Stranger is Finished. The pages were piled on his table, a manuscript to reread and revise. Calling the book by its title, The Stranger, gave it a denser reality. For four months, the manuscript of The Stranger accompanied him from Paris to Clermont-Ferrand, from Clermont-Ferrand to Bordeaux, from Bordeaux back to Clermont-Ferrand, and from Clermont-Ferrand to Lyon, where in late September 1940, Paris Soir set up shop for the duration of the German occupation. During those months of wandering, the situation in the already divided France went from bad to worse. He continued to work on the myth of Sisyphus in Lyon, while the pages of his finished novel gathered dust in various drawers in a series of boarding houses and hotel rooms. He wasn't quite yet ready to revise it. Then, on February 21st, 1941, he finished The Myth of Sisyphus, completing the three absurd novels which included The Stranger and Caligula. At the very moment he finished The Myth of Sisyphus and was about to send The Stranger to trusted readers to see whether it merited publication, he had a relapse of his tuberculosis. It would be arduous, but he would again recover. In the first week of April 1941, a week feverish, Albert Camus mailed four manuscripts to two addresses in the unoccupied zone of mainland France. The version of The Stranger that he sent has not survived intact, and it is impossible to know for sure what it looked like. Opinions vary about whether it was typed or handwritten. For him, who had never been published outside Algeria, the prospect of seeing not just one, but all three of his, as he referred to them, absurds published in Paris, was nothing short of miraculous. The stranger went to the printer on April 1st, 1942, but by the 1st of May, he had seen neither a copy of the book nor his contract. Then, on April 21st, 1942, the last pages of a first edition of 4,400 copies of The Stranger rolled off the Chantenay printing presses at 15 Rue de l'Abbé Grégoire. This was only a few blocks south of the Gaimard bookstore on the boulevard Raspail, where it went on sale for 25 francs a copy, about $4 in today's money. The book was ready for the Paris bookstores by May, but it would take two more months for it to appear in the unoccupied zone. By the early 1950s, he felt stifled and emptied. He feared he had fallen silent because he had no longer had anything to say as an artist. The violent public quarrel with Sartre over Camus' philosophical essay, The Rebel, led not just to the end of their friendship, but also to deepening doubts on his part about his art. As he told one friend, 
I feel like ink absorbed by a wad of paper. When he received the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1957 at the age of 44, some critics thought he was too young for the award. For others, however, he was too old and washed up. The prize, they concluded, confirmed that Camus was a literary relic who had nothing more to say. He unfortunately shared these doubts. In his short story, Jonas or the Artist at Work, he portrays an artist whose life slowly empties of creativity, an artist reduced to staring at a blank canvas. Tragically, in 1960, Albert Camus was killed in a car accident. In his pocket was a ticket for the train he had originally planned to take, and in his briefcase, a handwritten text of nearly 150 pages. It was the manuscript of Le Premier Homme, or The First Man, a novel he had begun writing in earnest after winning the Nobel Prize. As usual, I will leave you with one final quote from the philosopher novelist himself. I chose justice in order to remain faithful to the world. I continue to believe that this world has no ultimate meaning, but I know that something in it has a meaning, and that is man, because he is the only creature to insist on having one. This world has at least the truth of man." End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nemoa Hardin. We here at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. And as a final note, the main source for this episode was Looking for the Stranger, Albert Camus and the Life of a Literary Classic by Alice Kaplan. Until next time, keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Cristo M. Sanchez. Narrated and edited by me, Jason Lemore Harden. And music by Creature9 and Wood. All rights and ownership belong to Cristo M. Sanchez and Jason Lemore Harden.